How about now? Can you hear me now? Yes? Okay, good. Hope you can appreciate the, the richness of what we're trying to accomplish here in terms of the content of our worship as you think through the gospel, the scripture readings, the prayers. I hope that you'll be encouraged. And for some of you, if you're, you're new and you're visiting, some of the terms and the concepts are like, wow. But I really want you to think and learn and grow. And one of the things that we rejoice in is that people are coming to know God and know him more deeply and learn the scriptures. That's our desire. So if you have a Bible, if you'll turn to the Gospel of John chapter 17, and if you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras. Just raise your hand. <clears throat> if you're new with us, we welcome you. Don't feel out of place. When I first started coming to a Bible teaching church, I was clueless. Didn't really know my way around the Bible, so that's what we're here to help you with that. But this morning, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, and my notes are scattered here. I don't know how that happened, but I can fix them. Also, just want to call attention um, to the new current uh, sheets that we're giving out. We're not going through all of the announcements, but be sure if you have a need, you can um, fill out the communication card. Particularly, though, I want you to, to read through this and be praying for Austin and our Middle East team as they're uh, over there ministering, and we're asking God to bless them extraordinarily. We're at the end of what's called the Upper Room Discourse. This speech that Jesus gave, John 13 through 17, was the night before he was crucified. A friend of mine's son is in Army Ranger School right now. It's very, very demanding. And even to get accepted is incredibly hard. But of the 175 that are accepted, they only keep 15. And the final week of this months and months of incredible, grueling process they call Hell Week. And Hell Week weeds out a lot. And in many ways, Jesus is, is, is in Hell Week. And tomorrow morning, he's going to hang on the cross at 9 a.m. And he's going to bear the wrath of God and pay for the sins of the world. And so the, the themes that are brought out in this upper room are very profound, particularly the fact that Jesus realizes that now that he's leaving, he's preparing his disciples to go into a hostile world and to engage in a mission to bear fruit for him. And, and we've learned that Jesus wants to grow us, to bear fruit in our conduct, where we're doing what's right and serving and loving others. In our character, we're becoming like, Jesus, like Christ. And in conversions, we're seeing converts, people coming to know the Lord as we serve him together. Last week, we saw that Jesus told them that he would give them help through the Spirit, and he would give them hope that in the midst of their anguish, it's going to get better very soon. And he ended up by saying, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I'll overcome the world. Now he's going to pray for them. And it wasn't uncommon in, in ancient times, both among Greeks and Jews, at the end of a farewell speech to offer a prayer. And so this is the third prayer in the Gospel of John that Jesus has prayed. The other two are very brief. But this is a separate prayer and one that really I hope that you'll spend a lot of time reading, be well worth memorizing portions of it for a number of reasons I'll talk about in a moment. But bear in mind that Jesus' life was characterized by prayer. But this is not the same prayer that he's going to pray hours from now when he goes out of the city and into the Garden of Gethsemane where he agonizes for his people. Around the 1500s, someone began to call this prayer Jesus high priestly prayer. Now, the reason they said that is there's this marvelous story in the Bible 
that God wanted to have a relationship with mankind who had sinned. And the means by which he would do that is through a mediating priest. And so in the Old Testament, he raised up this, this tabernacle and temple, and he taught them that the, the high priest could offer a sacrifice, and then he would bring the blood of the sacrifice into the presence of God and pray for the people. And all of this was to picture the coming work of Christ. So God even told the high priest how to dress. He said, make an outfit that had 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 stones on your shoulders near his heart and on his shoulders as the priest brought us before God. And, and so here's Jesus, our great high priest, bringing us before God. And, and it's well worth thinking about for a number of reasons. First, I think as you and I study this prayer, it's a reminder that Jesus Christ is still praying for us. And that these things that he prayed weren't just for those people back then. In this prayer, he says, Father, I don't just pray for these guys right now. I pray for everyone who believes. So I hope that this prayer will become an anchor and a comfort to you as you consider that the Bible says Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. But secondly, this prayer will help you and me to learn how to pray better. That, that you and I can grow deeper in praying in accord with God's will. More biblical prayers. And so, as we're going to go through this prayer, I'm going to slow our roll a little bit. We're not going to go quite as fast because it's very deep. But I want to note some themes that we're going to reflect on in the next few weeks. And you might want to jot some of these things down. The first theme that we're going to look at is the theme of glorification. Jesus begins his prayer by saying, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. They have glorified you. So we're going to talk about glorification. Secondly, we're going to notice in this prayer a repeated prayer for protection. Jesus is going to say, keep them. Keep them from the evil one. Third, we're going to notice that Jesus prays for preservation and perseverance of God's people. He says, Father, of those whom you've given me, I've lost none of them. And so the reason why this is really important is when it comes to the Christian faith, there are a lot of starters like the Boston Marathon. Not everyone finishes. And what we learn is that those who don't finish were never a Christian. And so the doctrine of perseverance is a great comfort to remember that the reason I'm going to wake up tomorrow is that Jesus Christ is keeping me. He told Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And what a, a blessing it is to know that when I feel like giving up, hey, Jesus is praying for me and he will preserve me. Another thing we're going to notice is the theme of purification. That while God loves us just as we are, he loves us too much to leave us that way. And so Jesus is going to pray in this, in this prayer, Father, sanctify them, which means set them apart to become more and more like me, to be more and more free from sin. And he says that God's going to sanctify us through the word. And so we're going to learn how important it is to pray regularly for our own sanctification, not just for our blessings. And then the final theme that is prominent in this chapter is the perfection of love and unity. That Jesus Christ wants us to continually grow in our relationship of love towards him because of his love toward us, but then that that will overflow into our love and unity with one another. You've heard me say this before. Some old wag came up with a great line. To dwell above with the saints I love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints I know, now, that's a different story. 
And those of you who are married, you know how, long, how difficult it is to maintain continual unity. Parents and children, relationships, anger, conflict, and, and even in the church. So Jesus prays a number of times in this passage, Father, I pray that they will be one. I pray that the love that's in me will be in them and that the world will see this unity. And so we're going to talk much about how we model the Trinity and we witness to the world through a perfection of our love and unity. But this morning, we're only going to focus on the first five verses of this passage. And it's really profound because this prayer only has two sections. The first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. The whole rest of the chapter, he prays for us. But in these five verses are some incredibly deep and important truths about Jesus. And so if you're taking notes, we're going to read verses 1 through 5, and, and the theme here is a prayer for glorification. So we're going to unpack that and talk about this prayer for glorification. So let's start by reading it, and then we'll come back and, and take a look. So look at verse 1. I'll, I'll read, follow along. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven. I just see him looking up, Father, the hour has come. So he says, Father, glorify your son. What does that mean? So that your son may glorify you. Glorify him in the same way as you gave him authority over all flesh. So that to all that, that you have given to him, he may give to them eternal life. And this is eternal life, that, that they might know you, Father, the only true God, and, and know me, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now here says it again. Now, Father, glorify me. A second time he says it. Glorify me together with yourself. But then notice, with the glory which I had with you before the world begun, before the world was. Wow. So much in this prayer. So I want to start with this, this whole concept of what does it mean to glorify? The theme of the glory of God is a very, very important, perhaps in some ways the most important theme of the Bible, right? The Bible says from God, through God, and to God are all things to Him be the glory. It's all about God. But one could even say that the theme of the Bible, the story of creation and the fall and the redemption of God's elect and the judgment of the wicked, and the restoration of a new heaven and a new earth is all for God's glory. Now, what we learn when we read about the, about the God of the Bible is that innately He Himself possesses glory. He possesses glory that is, that is expressed in, in light. The Bible says God dwells in unapproachable light. He clothes himself in splendor and majesty. And so the scriptures actually refer to him as the God of glory. He's this grand and glorious God, unspeakably beautiful and perfect and, 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 and unmeasurable. We could never even begin to understand him, but the privilege of even knowing anything about him is incredible. But then what the Bible teaches is that God wants to glorify himself. So when Jesus says, Father, glorify me, the word glorify in Greek means this. You, you can do it on a human level. It means to influence someone's opinion 
about someone else. So on a human level, if I wanted to glorify someone else, I would enhance their reputation. I would tell you about them. I would, I would want to speak much about them so that you would honor them and hold them in a higher place, right? But the second meaning of the word is to actually cause someone to have greatness. So I can glorify someone by speaking of their greatness, but I can also cause them to have greatness. I can literally, this word can mean to clothe them in splendor. So what does Jesus mean? Because when you're reading glory in the Bible and glorify, you have to read the context. Okay? The Bible actually says that God will glorify us. But that's very different from the way that God glorified Jesus. And so I want you to jot a few of these things down because they're profoundly important. We don't cause God to be glorified. We celebrate his glory. We focus on him so his reputation is enhanced among his creatures. So, so we just get the, the privilege of telling others. But here we're going to learn, first of all, that for Jesus to be glorified by God, it involves, number one, a restoration of former glory. Okay, so we're going to actually start at the end of this first part. Look at verse 5. Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now let's look at the next part. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. Okay? So this is going to go deep, but think about this. Father, I want to experience a restoration of the glory that I had with you. Well, if there needs to be a restoration, then... Go ahead and get it, Brett. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If there needs to be a restoration, that means there was a suspension of glory for a time. So if we were to, to go back before the time that Christ came to earth, he was sitting in heaven with God. Isaiah chapter 6 describes him. Jesus says, this is what Isaiah spoke when he saw me. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. This is up in heaven. The angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Jesus is receiving praise and glory. He's shining in splendor. But at a moment in time, in the fullness of time, he steps up off of his throne and he chooses to give up the display and the reception of that glory and he comes down to earth. And he comes down to a little quiet village of Nazareth and he's born of a poor little virgin named Mary. The songwriter said, how silently, how silently. And so for a time, his glory is veiled, his glory is suspended and he comes to earth. But as he anticipates dying and rising again, he's saying, Father, restore to me that position of glory that I used to have. So, first of all, Jesus is praying for a restoration of that former glory. But secondly, his glorification involves a new reception of glory. It's not that he's just going to go back to heaven and take his rightful place. But because of his crucifixion and resurrection, God is going to exalt and glorify his son in a new way. Now, I rarely do this, but it's too important. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2, but don't lose John 17. If you're not used to working your way around the Bible, I'll read it to you. You don't need to go there. But if you can, go over to Philippians chapter 2, because here we see a fuller explanation of what Jesus was asking God to do when he said, Father, glorify your son. He's not just going to put him back where he was. 
He's going to exalt him to a place of authority and centrality in the universe that's new, unique, and glorious. And all of this is because of Christ's willingness to come and die. So beginning in chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul says that Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't say, I'm not going down there and giving up any of my glory. I'm not going to suspend any of the displays of my glory. I need to receive glory all the time. But instead, the Bible says Jesus emptied himself. This great act of humility. He took the, bond, the form of a bondservant and he was made in the likeness of man. So, so he comes down to earth and he becomes a human in skin and bones with a real fleshly body. And if that wasn't enough, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on the cross. But the passage doesn't stop there. What we learn is as a result of this act of obedience, God is going to reward him. And God's going to restore him, but he's also going to bestow upon him a new place of glory. Look at verse 9 here in, in Philippians 2. It says, Therefore... In other words, in light of his laying aside of his glory to die for us, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so in essence, what God has done is he says, I'm going to turn the spotlight to my son now in this age and that Jesus Christ is going to be entrusted with all of the universe, all of the judgment, and he's going to be the focal piece of mankind, the summing up of all things in Christ. And one day, every creature in heaven and on earth, angels, people, we're all going to bow down and we're going to worship Jesus and we're going to proclaim that he's Lord of all. And this is part of what Jesus is anticipating. Father, glorify your son. But I also want you to note something that's really profound about this prayer. That Jesus' prayer to be restored to glory, to receive this new glory as a reward. Third, that this glorification is designed to bring God glory. You're like, what? Well, look at verse 1. Father, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Now, that's, that's deep. We're in the deep end now. Do you see what he's saying? Father, as, I, as I'm about to be crucified and, and die this shameful death for the sins of the world, as Benjamin was reminding us, to conquer sin, to conquer Satan, and to be powerfully raised from the dead, I want you to exalt me and raise me far above every name that is named and seat me at your right hand, and I will pour out the Spirit on mankind. Father, I will glorify you. And ironically, that's what Philippians 2 says. God has highly exalted him so that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it doesn't stop there. To the glory of God the Father. So we have this profound mutual engagement of glorification. Whoa. God glorifies his son so that his son may glorify him. And you're like, wow, man. Jesus, 
he's, he's, he's praying for something profound here. And we're going, yeah. But there's one more point I want to make about this glorification. Because this glorification results for us, little critters down here, little creatures in the image of God, it allows us to see his glory and to experience and receive eternal life. So there's a lot at stake here. Jesus isn't going, God, let me get my glory back because I miss it. So let's carefully look at, at, at his prayer. Father, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Even as, so in the same way, I want you to glorify me, Father, in the same way as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Uh, I'm just stunned, right? How many people have ever lived on this planet? Clues, right? We know there's around 7 billion now, but we've got to go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Of all those people that ever lived on planet Earth, before time ever began, God selected a people within people. And he gave them to Jesus. And he sent Jesus to die for them and to give them eternal life. And each time someone becomes a Christian, it's as though Jesus the messenger comes up and says, hey, I have something for you. This is from God. It's eternal life. And to think that Jesus and God would give anybody eternal life, if that's not profound enough in itself, like, you know, we try to think of, you know, what would it mean to, to, to have eternal life? Maybe it's what Ponce de Leon had when he, when he had the fountain of youth. Maybe it's, maybe it's talk everlasting when they find that, that little well and they, if you drink this, you live forever. We tend to think that eternal life is just, if you have eternal life, you're going to live forever. But that's not really what eternal life is. Eternal life is not primarily a quantity of relationship because people in hell live forever but they do not have eternal life. Eternal life is a quality of relationship. I get to see God's glory and come to know him. And you're like, oh, pastor, where do you get that from? Well, look at verse three. I'm going to give people eternal life, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life, Jesus? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I want you to think about it. Right now, on this planet, 7 billion people. Atheists, polytheists, worshiping, you name it. Sun, moon, stars, creatures, themselves. Very few of them know God. And I didn't say that, Jesus did. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. So it is a magnificent, extraordinary privilege to know God personally. This is no little thing. So when Jesus Christ says, Father, glorify your Son that he may glorify you, I've given them eternal life, and eternal life is to know you, the only true God. Now I want you to think about that phrase, to know you, because we, we use that phrase, and the Bible uses that phrase to describe what it means to be a Christian. When we say, so-and-so has come to know the Lord. 
And it would be worthy for you to ask even this morning, do you know the Lord? Because if you don't know the Lord, you will never go to heaven. You're like, I know all about him, pastor. No, the devil knows all about him. Do you know the Lord? If you know the Lord, then you have eternal life. Now, I want you to notice this. You're not going to get it in the future. You got it, like Gatorade. It's in you, right? The Bible says in 1 John 5, 20, the Son of God, Jesus, has come and given us an understanding so that we might know him that is true, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So, so what I want you to think about is, is the vibrancy and vitality and satisfying pleasure of having a real relationship with God where you know him. You're going to be like Elf when Santa goes by. I know him, right? The, the, the sweet name of Jesus excites your soul because something happened and now I know. He touched me. Now, the irony is many people struggle whether they know the Lord because they don't remember when they first came to know him. And part of that's our fault. Part of that's our music. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. Day I will never forget. And half of Christianity is looking around going, I don't remember the day. I, I could say John 3.16 before I could talk. Well, I want to put your mind and your soul at rest if you're a, a child of God. You don't need to know when. John Beagle just handed me a quote, and if I don't find it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be languishing in fear and shame because it was such a great quote. John, are you still here? Help me, Roy. This was such a profound quote. Ah, oh, here it is. Satan will ask you, Chris, now you ask yourself, do I, do I know Jesus? Do I have eternal life? If I lay my weary head down on my bed and the doctor says, you got about two hours, I'm going to go, this is great, I'm going right to heaven. If you're not sure, because you go, I don't know when I came to know the Lord. John Beagle gave me a quote from a man named William Gurnall. He said, Satan will ask the Christian, what was the time of your, of your conversion? Are you a Christian, Satan says? Do you know when your Christianity commenced? Do you know when you came to know the Lord? And he says, relax. You don't need to worry about that. Content yourself with this that you can see streams of grace through the time of your conversion. And though the time of your conversion is not to be found, now this is cool, you might know now, and you can say this for sure, the sun's up, even though you didn't observe when it rose. That's cool, right? You don't have to go, oh, it was on April 7th when I was 12 years old. If you know, great. I think many of us are going to be surprised when we find out that isn't when you came to know me. I hear this all the time. Oh, yeah, I came to know Jesus when I was four. I was an axe murderer, drug addict, crackhead, <laughs> transvestite. And then when I was seven, I rededicated my life. I go, no, you, you probably weren't saved, right? Now, I, I, this is as serious as it gets. Jesus wants you to know him. And you come to know him, first of all, as an act of his grace when he opens your eyes and you realize you're a sinner. And you realize that your sin is dragging you straight to the pit. And you're going to go to hell 
and there's nothing you can do about it by way of good works. But somehow you begin to realize, whether in a bright sunny day or streams of little, that the cross is everything, that Christ, when he went to that cross, he paid for your sins. And he said, it's finished. No purgatory, no penance. It's finished. He paid it all. And when you cast yourself upon Jesus in faith with a willingness to follow him, you are completely forgiven and he grants to you this wonderful gift of everlasting life. And you might not even know you got it yet. Matter of fact, it took me a little while to figure out I was born. How about you? It may take some of you a little while to figure out whether you're born again, but there are evidences. For example, if you have come to know the Lord, your attitude towards sin will be different. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says, No one who has been born from God will continually practice a life of sin. He can't because God's seed abides in him. John says, If you say you have come to know him and you do not want to keep his commandments, you're deceiving yourself. When God opens my eyes, and I come to know Jesus, my heart is changed. It may be a little at a time. It doesn't have to be a glorious bursting forth of light. But do you see any evidence? And if you do, I want you to celebrate with me that Jesus Christ has given you eternal life. And I'm going to tell you this. Don't trade that for nothing. The devil says, yeah, but what about, you're going to give up this, you're going to give up that, and you can't, bleh, bleh. stop it, devil. Jesus says, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? So the final thing in this prayer when Jesus says, Father, glorify me, because when Jesus died and rose again and was glorified, that's the vehicle by which we came to know him. And so there's this really cool connection in Scripture between knowing God and seeing his glory. I shared with this a while back in the fall, someone came to me and he said, Pastor Tom, God's really opened my eyes. I was, I was blind, but now I see, I, I get it. Jesus saves me, right? And then just recently, a man came up to me after service. He said, I've heard sermons before, but he said, for the first time, I heard it. I heard what you were saying. God got through to me. And think of these sensory illustrations. I see, I hear. I told, I told the elders, I said, I want to get a triple here. I want somebody to say, I tasted. <laughs> and if you think that's funny, that's, that's biblical. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And when God opens your eyes, you, 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 you feed on Jesus. You go, I want Jesus. I believe. And, and you, you have life in yourself now. So, man, Jesus, glorify me, Father. So, a restoration, a new reception of glory as a reward for bringing God glory. It's designed to bring him more glory, and I get to know him and see his glory in my own life. That's deep. And that's why I slowed down as we're going to go through this prayer. But let me let me now turn to some, some thoughts about that, okay? So if God himself is glorious and God reveals his glory to me in a relationship, then now 
what about glory now? I want to give you some very practical things to think about as a Christian. When you became a Christian, the Bible says God caused the light of the gospel to shine in your heart to give you a knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But I go, okay, fine, that was pretty neat. But what do I do during the week? Well, I want to share some thoughts. Number one, God saved you and me so that we could glorify Him. Okay? And the first way that we glorify Him is by our praise. We're not paying Him back. We're just praising Him. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 that He chose us, that He redeemed us to the praise of His glory. And so get your praise on, right? Practice praising, okay? So one of the things I want you to continually do is think about how rich these songs are that we're singing. We are learning to sing praise to God. We are learning to offer praise to God. We're not just a bunch of crazy nuts handling snakes going, praise the Lord, hallelujah. We are redeemed sinners who know Jesus. And when we get to heaven, we're going to say, you are worthy. We're going to praise him. We're going to sing about him. And so let's do that now. Daily, when you get in your car, instead of 610 or talk radio or WIP, or, you know, that's fine. But get some Christian songs in there. I don't care if you rap them, you rock them, you, you, you know, violin them, but get some Christian music. The Bible says, let the words of Christ dwell richly, teach one another with songs. The Bible says, sing and make melody in your heart. Now, for me, my buddies are hymns. They carry me. They bless me. But you don't have to have hymns, but get something that's not just, Jesus, you're the bomb. Praise the Lord, right? Because as we do that, as we learn new songs, we're, we're, we're bringing Him glory. Even as you go to school and you're studying biology and chemistry and all of the disciplines of this world, theology is the queen. But God has given us this world to explore and do science. The Bible says the whole earth is full of His glory. So as you study His works, as you enjoy literature and art and music, praise Him keeping focused on His glory. So we glorify Him by our, our praise. Secondly, we glorify Him by our prayers. And this is why I say as we learn to, to see how Jesus prayed, our prayers are going to go on steroids. They're going to get better. Because a resounding theme of our prayers is going to be God's glory. It's not going to be, God, take this pain away from me, take me away from this pain, bless me and bless me indeed. It's going to be God. Most of my prayers I want to end for your glory, like Paul did. See, I pray all the time for this church. I say, God, do something awesome. Rock it out and let thousands come to Christ. You're like, thousands? I go, thousands. Why, a mega church? No, I want to see a mega glory in heaven of soul saved. And Paul says in Ephesians 3, now, to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we ask or think, to him be the glory in the church. God, save people for your glory. As you pray for your family and friends, as you pray for your own soul, don't just say, Jesus, bless me indeed, and prayer Jabez, enlarge my borders. But how about the prayer of Paul in Philippians 1? God, may my love abound in knowledge and discernment, so I approve what's excellent. And may I be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Your prayers are always thinking about the glory of God. 
Father, save my child, not so he can be a successful doctor, but like John the Baptist, he will grow up and be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will make your name great. Lord, may my grandkids and my grandsons be preachers and pastors and missionaries, and whatever they do, may they live for your glory. And may people see the glory of God through me. Paul said, my earnest prayer is that Christ will be exalted in my body. So let your prayers focus on his glory. But then, we also glorify God by our practices. Yeah, you can praise him today and go sleeping around tomorrow. The Bible says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Therefore, glorify God with your body. So if I'm cussing and lying and looking at porn and sexually impure, angry and shouting at my wife and kids and selfish in my home, I'm not glorifying God. And he's going to help you to glorify him. You can do that through Christ who strengthens us. As we live for him, our lifestyle is a living sacrifice to give glory for God. As we give to him, many of you give generously. Many of you don't give at all. And I don't want your money. But if you're a Christian and you're not giving, you've got to figure that out. Please don't say you can't afford to give. If you, everything you have belongs to Jesus. You can't afford not to give. A Christian disciple is generous with his stuff. I don't know who gives, but we know that in the average evangelical church in America, half, 50% of people don't give at all. So we glorify God by our practices. We glorify him in community. We glorify him in our purposeful advancement of the gospel. My life is not to be lived for my goals and aims and, and my satisfaction. Paul says, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win some. Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I might win some, whether I eat or I drink or whatever I do, I do it for the glory of God. So I got to adjust my GPS that goes, put the gospel right in the middle. And whenever I lose sight of the fact that the people around me and my children and my wife, I'm here to love them and, and help them become like Jesus and we glorify God and advance the gospel, then I need somebody to go recalculate, recalculate, get back, get your focus. And that's why we gather on Sundays. But if this is all you do is you come for an hour on Sunday, you're just getting beginning. You need to be in with other believers, in fellowship and prayer with the word. So exciting, isn't it? This is just good stuff. But, but as we close this morning, Benjamin's going to come. We're going to just sing real quickly a song because how can we finish this great thought of God's glory without giving him glory? While we're singing this song, and I'm not going to delay this, but I always want to provide an opportunity for people who become a Christian to publicly confess that. When God opens your eyes, you taste him, you hear him, you see him, you believe in him, and he saves your soul, and you're ready to follow him. You should publicly confess that. The Bible says, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. So if God has saved you today or recently, and you would like to, just come and stand with me and celebrate that God has given you eternal life. But the rest of us, we're all going to join together, praising God and giving him glory.
So come and stand with me if you please. We won't cry if you don't, but we'll rejoice with you if you do.